Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We were blessed indeed last Sunday morning as Brother Tony Richmond taught on the Lord's healing of blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was standing alongside the road leading to the city of Jericho when he heard that Jesus was approaching. And so he yelled out and said, Master, called for Jesus. He didn't care who heard him. As he continued to yell, Jesus uh, went over to him and of course he healed him and traveling on with his inner circle disciples, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he has stated clearly to those disciples what awaited him there, his arrest, his torture, and ultimately his crucifixion. As chapter 19 begins, he is passing through that city of Jericho. Now Jericho was situated below sea level. And uh, in fact, last night I was reading my daily Bible reading and uh, God took Moses up on the mountain He was not going to allow him into the promised land, but he saw all the way over to Jericho and he called it a city of palms. And that's exactly what it was in the day of Jesus. It was known for its medicinal balsam, which was made out of the palm trees there. It was situated at the crossroads of several trade routes and was thriving economically during the time of Jesus. And one group that was particularly prosperous in Jericho were the tax collectors, known sometimes as publicans. These were Jewish men who had partnered uh, with the occupying Roman government to extract tax revenue from the locals. And they were universally despised by their countrymen and viewed really as traitors to their own homeland. In many cases, their reputation for dishonesty was well-earned. They often used extortion to pad their own pocketbooks. Now back in chapter 18, Jesus declared in a parable that a tax collector who humbly repented was justified in the eyes of God. Now here in chapter 19, we see that story play out in real life and the interaction that he has with a fellow named Zacchaeus. Let's read the first 10 verses of Luke 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. And he was about to pass through that way. And Jesus came to the place. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Lord had his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now I know that all of you who grew up in Baptist churches or if you ever went to vacation Bible school, even one summer, have a little song running around your head right now about a wee little man. But I want all of us to concentrate really hard this morning because these 10 verses are not about Zacchaeus. They are about Jesus. 
They're not about a man's stature. They are about a sovereign savior. And so this morning we're going to walk through the details of this familiar story Then I want us to bore down deep into the core theological issues of this story. And finally, we'll attempt to show how these doctrines should affect our lives today as followers of Christ. So let's begin in verse one, the Savior's call. He entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was able because of the crowd for he was small in stature. Now, first of all, the name Zacchaeus means pure and undefiled. What a joke. No doubt the people from whom he was extorting money had a lot of fun with his name. There comes the pure and undefiled Zacchaeus about to rob us blind. He's called here a chief tax collector. That reminds me of the Apostle Paul's description of himself. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. But in the eyes of Jewish people of that day, to be a chief tax collector was tantamount to being a chief sinner because the word publican, tax collector, had become a synonym of the word sinner. But the Bible says he was rich. Now, what did Jesus say about the rich as it related to their souls in the previous chapter? He says, it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of the needle. So it was a disadvantage spiritually. And the scripture says he was small in stature. In fact, that's the first thing we think about I suspect when you hear the word Zacchaeus, you think of someone who's short. Scripture says this smallness made it hard for him to see or even get near to Jesus. And so put those things together that he was um, a chief tax collector. He was a great sinner. He was rich and he couldn't even get to see Jesus physically. That makes him one of the least likely candidates to be saved from a human perspective. And yet remember what Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God determined to save this chief tax collector, so he pursued him until he found him. And he found him up in a sycamore tree that God in his sovereignty had planted there years earlier. Now verse four says, so he ran ahead because he was small, couldn't see. He ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now, we said that Zacchaeus was rich. That is about the only thing that he had in common with the rich young ruler that interacted with Jesus in chapter 18. Both of them had a conversation with Jesus but their responses to Jesus were polar opposites. And Jesus even handles his interaction with Zacchaeus very differently than he did the rich young ruler because he knew both of their hearts. He knew precisely where each one was spiritually. And so he dealt with them as individuals. The first thing he does to Zacchaeus, he calls him by name. Now that must have gotten his attention because as far as we know, Jesus never met this man. Didn't spend a whole lot of time in Jericho, but he knew him because after all, he's God. That reminds me of uh, what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. And so he called him by name. He got his attention. The next thing he did, he commanded him. He said, hurry down Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your house. 
going to stay there. The implication is overnight. After all, Jesus is the Lord, isn't he? And he commands those who would follow him. But ultimately, in the presence of all this throng, most of whom hated Zacchaeus with a passion, Jesus confirmed him as his own. He said, I must go to your house and fellowship with you. He publicly identified with Zacchaeus. Now, few people were friends of Zacchaeus who would admit it. Most would have nothing to do with him, especially in a social setting. But Jesus did, treated him as a friend. Now, now look at Zacchaeus' response, verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him gladly. He hurried down. This is what we parents call first-time obedience. That's what we aim for with our children, right? We don't want to have to say ten times, first-time obedience. He said, come down, and he hurried down. This tells me that he'd already started that process of discipleship. The Scripture says, if you love Christ, you keep his commandments. He obeyed him. Scripture says he received him. Now, compare that and really contrast it with the rich young ruler. When he had an interview with Jesus, his question is, what can I do to ensure eternal life? Give me a task to do. Zacchaeus didn't ask for a task. He simply obeyed. In fact, Jesus made it clear in the previous chapter that no one's going to get into heaven unless they come with the attitude of a little child. And that's the first thing I think about when I'm thinking about Zacchaeus. For one, we see him running. That's what children do. They, they run ahead of the crowd. And when's the last time you saw an adult climb a tree? Kids do it all the time. And so he climbs up in the tree. He already has that, that heart of a child. But I think the most important word that tells us Zacchaeus' response to Jesus is that he received him gladly. Now again, the rich young ruler went away from Jesus sad, the scripture says, because he was unwilling to pay the price. Zacchaeus walked away glad. Now, when sinners are saved, and I think that's exactly what's happening here, when sinners are saved, not everyone's going to be pleased. Wherever he went, Jesus had his detractors. And one of the things his detractors used to murmur about is that this one eats with tax collectors and sinners. And they were exactly right. Jesus would respond when people would say that, that the well need not a physician. Jesus was a physician, a doctor of the soul. And if anyone needed a soul doctor, it was Zacchaeus. So Jesus went to his house and ministered to him. That led to the scorn of the crowd in verse 7. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I mentioned this week I've been reading about Moses in the Pentateuch. And if there was one thing that was consistent through that 40 years of wilderness wandering, it was the murmuring of the people against Moses. They would murmur and complain. They would try to overthrow him. They would complain about God's providence, about the food and the water and what they had to do. And Moses constantly was intervening and interceding on behalf of the people, begging God not to wipe them off the face of the earth, right up to the time that the Lord took him to heaven. To murmur is just like what it sounds, to grumble under one's breath. And, and I take it as the people began to gather around Jesus and Zacchaeus, it became louder and louder. And, and Zacchaeus could no doubt hear this murmuring he could feel the tension rising, and so he spins around on his heels. And in the Greek, it says he took a stand. 
That is, he got in a posture to give a speech. He, he was willing, I take it, to, to suffer for the sake of identifying with Jesus. And friends, that is a sure sign of genuine repentance and faith. He counted the cost and he was ready to give up all for the sake of intimacy with the Savior. Now he gets in that position to give the speech and he directs the speech to Jesus, but he says it to all the congregation. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now don't skip over that too quickly. He says, I'm going to give away half of my net worth, which was substantial. Scripture says he was rich. And that tells us something about Zacchaeus from this moment on. Money was no longer his God. Jesus was his God. He says, secondly, if I've defrauded any man, I'm going to restore four times as much. Did you know under the old covenant, if someone defrauded his neighbor, he was to pay it back with 20% interest. He says, I'm going to go way beyond what is required by the law, and I'm going to restore 400%. And again, contrast Zacchaeus' reaction once he's saved to the rich young ruler who Jesus said, you lack one thing, go sell all you have, and give the proceeds to the rich. Jesus did not say a word to Zacchaeus about divesting himself of his riches, but he volunteered to do that. The rich young ruler was busy defending his righteousness to Jesus. Remember, he says, I have kept all of the law from my youth. We don't see Zacchaeus defending himself. In fact, what he's doing here is admitting he was a crook. When he says, if I have defrauded any man, that is better translated, since I have defrauded men, I'm going to restore four times as much. He knew he was a crook. This is what it means to come to Jesus on his terms. I say that all the time here. We have to come to Jesus on his terms. That is not defending ourselves, not holding up our honor, not trying to leverage for better terms. This is what it means to be born again. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Zacchaeus had a brand new outlook on life. He had a brand new outlook on money and had a brand new outlook on his own future. And that's a wonderful story, but, but the real point of this story and the real bottom line is the sovereignty of Jesus found in verse nine. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. By this time, they've stopped in front of Zacchaeus's house. Before he goes in, he turns around, he takes a stand and he announces to all who would hear his intent to be different in the future. Salvation has come to this house. Jesus is affirming what he affirmed about the tax collector in the parable one chapter earlier that he went down to his house justified in the eyes of God. Justified means to be made right, to be made whole, to be forgiven, to have nothing held over you as a liability. In fact, Jesus took it a step farther and he says he too is a son of Abraham. Now, genetically, no doubt he was Jewish, as were these other men, but he had been considered outside of the family of faith because he had been a traitor to the nation of Israel. But Jesus says he is truly a son of Abraham. That is, he's a son of the, son of the promise. 
Though he was rejected by his own countrymen, he was received by his creator. And here is, is the main point of the story. Jesus declares his mission that the Son of Man has come in to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. More than any other title that Jesus used to refer to himself, he used this one, the Son of Man. And it's found in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Daniel was looking forward in time as a prophet. He foretold of a time when one would come as the Son of Man and he would create a new kingdom. Jesus was saying every time he said, I'm the son of man, that I am he that Daniel spoke of. I am the Messiah. Remember the great confusion for even Jesus' closest inner circle of disciples is what is the identity and really what is the character of the son of man. They were looking for this earthly king who would set up a kingdom and make them governors over it. Jesus came as the suffering servant and his purpose, this first coming, was not to judge, not to put down kingdoms, but he said, my purpose is to seek and to save that which is lost. He set his face towards Jerusalem like a flint to accomplish his mission. Nothing could persuade him to the right or to the left. And friends, he indeed accomplished his mission, did he not? Well, there are some... There are some doctrinal implications here that we, we want to look at. The fact that Jesus' mission was to seek and the, to save, that is to pursue relentlessly the object of his mission. In 1858, the first Southern Baptist Seminary was established in Louisville, Kentucky. And on that day, they established also the abstract of principles as their doctrinal statement. And they still abide by that. Every fall, every professor at Southern Seminary has to sign that they believe the doctrines that are laid forth in the Abstract of Principles. And in the Abstract of Principles, one of those articles is the doctrine on election. And it says here, election is God's eternal choice of some persons into everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but of his mere mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. And in the story of Zacchaeus, we see the glorious doctrine of election. Not because there was something good in Zacchaeus, there was not a thing in Zacchaeus' life that he could hold up as worthy. And of course, the Apostle Paul says that's not just true of Zacchaeus. That's true of every person, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That word chose is electos in the Greek, to elect, to choose. And God is the one who does the choosing. He says he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. Not that we would continue in sin, but that he would transform our lives. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That is, he made us part of his forever family. That's what Jesus meant when he said of Zacchaeus, he is now truly a son of Abraham. And Paul confirms the same truth in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 
You see, Zacchaeus had no merit within himself. When he was in high school, I suspect he was elected most unlikely to be saved. But God, in his sovereignty, determined to save him. Now, Jesus could have approached Jerusalem from any number of routes, but he chose the route that Zacchaeus would be on. And when he came up to him, he called him by name, even though as far as we know, he'd never met. And he opened his spiritual eyes and he saved him. Now, just as with every other person that Jesus saved, Jesus used means to bring about Zacchaeus' salvation. For one, he used words, didn't he? He talked to him. The Bible says that's how God uses people today. He says, uh, how will they hear unless there is a preacher? See, salvation comes through hearing the gospel message, and that's where we come in. It's our job to tell the story of Jesus. He used this situation. He used all the events of Zacchaeus' life to bring him to this point of desperation. He even used a sycamore tree that had been planted perhaps a hundred years earlier to bring this all about. We call all of these means and situations that God works together for good for those that love him, his providence. Again, from the abstract of principles, providence is defined this way. God from eternity decrees and permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. You see, there are many, some of which were our forefathers that founded this nation who would describe themselves theologically as deist. A deist is a person that believes that, that some entity somewhere created the universe, but he has nothing to do with it since. He sort of winds up the universe as a child's toy and walks away. He's totally disinterested in what happens to humanity. That's not what the Bible says here. That's not what uh, throughout the scriptures we read. See, the doctrine of providence is not only did God create the heavens and the earth and everything in it, including man, but that from eternity, he has decreed all things and permits them to come to pass. And he is perpetually, that is always without fail, upholding, directing, and governing all events. That's the God we serve. Now, what does that have to do with us? That's interesting for theologians to talk about. How does that affect your life? Well, just this. If you are here today and truly a Christian, you've truly been born again, you need to be reminded of this over and over. You are not an accidental Christian. If you are here and born again, it means something. It means that God chose you before the foundation of the world just as surely as he did Zacchaeus. And it means that in just the right time in history, God sent Jesus to die for you. Jesus went to the cross with you and all the elect on his mind to save everyone who one day would believe. That's not all. And that while he walked this planet, and even to this good day, he did everything that was necessary so that you would hear the gospel and be his child. It wasn't by luck that someone shared with you the gospel. 
See, I used to think that way when I was a young man. I remember very vividly as a teenager, my parents uh, bought my brother and I a great gift when we were little boys, the World Book Encyclopedia. And I grew up before the internet. And so I remember spending hours and hours pouring through the World Book Encyclopedia and uh, studying the geography and maps particularly. Atlases always have uh, interested me. And, and so it had a couple effects on my life. One is you don't want to play me in Trivial Pursuit. And two, it started me thinking about humanity because I studied the different civilizations of the world, went on to college and studied as a major. And I remember saying to my, my mom and dad one day as a teenager, you know, if I had been born Chinese, I would likely be Buddhist. Or if I had been born in India, I'd likely be Hindu. And so I just thought being a Christian was a luck of the draw. I just happen to be born into a godly home. Aren't I fortunate? As I look back on that through the lens, now knowing what I know about the Bible and about God's sovereignty, I realize how silly that is to ascribe all the things that God was doing to bring me to himself to coincidence and happenstance and luck. But it's not just know-it-all teenagers that think that way. Just last year I was sitting with a group of my pastor friends and we were telling stories about our churches and I was sitting in the middle of two of my best pastor friends, good men. And they were talking about what was going on in their church and, and one related the story of a young lady who had come to his church through a family that had participated in a program that hosted exchange students. This particular young lady was German and if you know the evangelical situation in Germany, it's not good. In Germany, it's not good. There's, there's very few evangelical churches there. And so the chances of her even hearing the true gospel were almost nil in her homeland. But, but she came over here as an exchange student and was placed in the home of a godly family who took her to church and she became a Christian. God gloriously saved her. And one pastor friend of mine said to another right over me, what luck! How lucky she is that she got placed in a Christian home and got to hear the gospel. And I looked at him as kindly as I could and I said, are you crazy? <laughs> Do you realize how silly it is to, to ascribe the events that God was working all that together to make sure that one he loved would hear the gospel? And friends, that's not just true of that little German girl. Not just true of Zacchaeus, that's true of every child of God. He works all things together for their good and for his glory. Let me just tell you a little bit of how sovereign God is. Did you know that the sycamore tree is not even indigenous to Israel? It's indigenous to Africa. And it was introduced to Israel from Africa by the Philistines in the Iron Age. And that particular tree that... Uh, Zacharias Klein was, was probably placed there at least 100 years earlier in the providence of God. And so God is sovereign even over a sycamore tree, isn't he? And Jesus didn't just happen to take that route to Jericho. He determined to take it so that he'd have this interaction with not only Bartimaeus, but also with Zacchaeus. 
So, so here is why I love the doctrine of election. And I know not everybody does. But if you don't believe in the doctrine of election, your problem's with the Bible, not with your pastor. It's throughout the scriptures. Here's why I love the doctrine of election. Let me get real personal about it. Here's the implication of this doctrine. God determined to save Keith Sanders before he ever drew a breath. And therefore, it's not based on my goodness because I don't have any. And at just the right moment in all of human history, stretching thousands of years at the perfect time, God sent Jesus to be born of a virgin. And even today, he's working all things together, all things together, even my own rebellion and sinfulness, he's working together for good that I and every one of his would hear the gospel and believe. It's not just that. Now that I am saved, hear this, now that I am saved, he will move heaven and earth so that nothing can snatch me out of his hands. That's why I believe I can't lose my salvation. As John MacArthur said, you know how you can't, no, you can't lose your salvation? Because if you could, you would. But you can't. Because it's not based on you. It's based on his ability to keep you saved. His sovereignty, not ours. But here's the greatest implication of this doctrine. Because he's done all those things to make sure I hear the gospel, to make sure that, that I believe, one day... He will bring me to glory to worship him forever. It's what we teach here about salvation. Justification, at a moment in time in the past, he opens our blind eyes. We're born again. We believe and we repent. That's what Zacchaeus did. And for the rest of our lives, we're in a process of sanctification. God is separating us from sin. He separated Zacchaeus from his love of money. And one day we'll see Brother Zacchaeus in heaven. Because the Bible says, he that began a good work in you will complete it. Not just for Zacchaeus, but for every child of his. And friend, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I don't believe you're here by accident. God has placed you to hear the glorious good news gospel that Jesus died for sinners. And see, the bad news is that, that you are a sinner. You're a sinner, first of all, because you're a child of Adam. The Bible says, in sin were you conceived. And you're a sinner also by choice and by action, according to Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news is that uh, Jesus has done everything that is necessary for you to be restored in relationship to your holy creator God. And the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes tax collectors, that includes murderers, that include people that are adulterers, that includes people who from the world's perspective are the least likely to believe. God rejoices in saving people like Zacchaeus and he rejoices in saving people like you and me. And so I would say to you, what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, hurry down. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe on Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. 
I thank you for the story of Zacchaeus. Lord, I've heard it so many times. I can remember sitting in Sunday school class and uh, godly teachers putting that little picture on a flannel board and wondering that you would save someone like Zacchaeus. And Father, throughout my life, I've, I've studied this passage and for many years thought it was about this little man. Father, the truth is all the Bible, including the story of Zacchaeus, is about you. It's about your sovereignty. And Father, we, we pray that as we think about our own salvation, that we would be reminded that there was nothing good within us to recommend us to you. That anyone who's saved must humble themselves as Zacchaeus did as a little child. Father, they have to come to you with uh, empty hands and outturned pockets. And Father, they have to, as John the Baptist said, manifest repentance through a changed life to have assurance of salvation. And, and we see that in Zacchaeus. He was willing to depart with half of his net worth and beyond that to, to restore everyone he had defrauded 400%. Father, I pray that, that we would do the same. Father, I pray that like Zacchaeus, our desire for intimacy and fellowship with the Savior would supersede any desire to save face or to point any attention to ourselves. And Father, I pray if there's even one lost soul among us today who has never bowed the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that uh, your spirit would breathe life into their soul, that their spiritual eyes would be open, that they'd be regenerated, and that you would grant them faith and repentance. Lord, I pray you'd add to your kingdom today for your glory and your namesake. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.